So I have been doing a lot of traveling this month. I've gotten to go to Texas to see one son, Vermont to see another son. My daughter flew in from Washington State, so I did a lot of driving back and forth to the airport to, to pick her up. So I have seen a lot of road signs. Well, except in Vermont. So just uh, sidebar here, Ben and I were trying to go see Robert Frost's cabin in Vermont, and there really are no signs to it. And so we got to where we kind of thought it was supposed to be, pulled off on the side of the road, started hiking through the woods, and two roads diverged, as you might assume. And uh, we eventually found Robert Frost's cabin, but when we did, I said to Ben, I can't believe there were no road signs telling us where to go. And he said, Mom, this is Vermont. No one lives here. <laughs> we don't need road signs. <laughs> anyway, if you're from Vermont or listening and you're from Vermont, I love Vermont. It's literally the cutest place in the state. I mean, in the entire nation, not the state. Cutest state in the nation. Anyway, but I digress, sorry. Um, I was driving back from Grand Junction from dropping my daughter off at the airport when one of these road signs caught my eye. It was one of those big electronic signs that the Colorado Department of Transportation sends messages out. And they're usually pretty run-of-the-mill messages like don't text and drive or seatbelt laws enforced or everyone's favorite, veil pass closed. <laughs> but this particular sign got my attention to the point that I was thinking about it miles down the road. It said, road rage is bad exclamation point, be the better person. Now, it struck me this way. Number one, there was a judgment of bad behavior. And number two, there was a practical solution that was va uh, rooted in values. Be the better person. Now, we're used to seeing signs that just state the law, not the value of the community. Certainly, in this case, it was more the value of the person who was sitting behind the electronic keyboard at the CDOT offices typing out the messages. And so this got me thinking about today's reading. Because when you have to write a sermon for Sunday, you look for divine intervention everywhere. And so in our gospel reading this morning, the Pharisees gathered themselves together to challenge Jesus, to test him, the scripture says. He was, as you all know, making these claims that seemed outrageous to the Pharisees. And so they huddled together and appointed their very best legal scholar to confront Jesus. This man was a religious leader, but most importantly, he was an expert in the law. All the laws which had been handed down since the time of Moses. And this was his calling to know the laws. He knew them inside and out, and it was his job to direct the Jews accordingly. So with all of the power vested in him, he approached Jesus, hoping to trap him. He said, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now remember, there were 613 laws altogether in the Hebrew Bible, and this scholar would have known every one of them. By Matthew's account here in the gospel, this was not a sincere or collegial question. This was meant to trap Jesus, to set him up. And to what end, we can only speculate, but it seems that there was more at stake here than just a healthy religious debate. 
And the first thing Jesus does in answering the question is to go straight to the Torah, to the Hebrew Bible, a place where the religious leaders would have surely been very comfortable and where Jesus would use that scripture to guide them and to guide us to recall the very holiness of God as the answer. The greatest commandment, he said, is in fact a direct quote from Deuteronomy. It's a prayer that is still the most fundamental, important expression of Jewish faith, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, Jesus said. And then he added, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind would have been a very familiar phrase to the Israelites, just as it is today. The Shema is one of only two prayers that are specifically commanded in Torah, and it's the oldest fixed daily prayer recited morning and night since ancient times. So perhaps the religious scholar thought to himself, eh, lucky guess. But Jesus went on to say, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is also a direct quote from the Torah, this time from Leviticus 19, which you heard read aloud this morning. And it's here in Leviticus that I want to spend some time this morning. Now, before you all groan and decide you need to kind of make an early exit, because who needs Leviticus, right? It's old-fashioned, it's outdated, it's barbaric, violent. We don't need Leviticus, you might be thinking. But before you go there, remember this, that when Jesus was tested and came up with an answer about love, he went directly to the book of Leviticus to do so. So we cannot ignore it. The New Testament did not invent the command to love. It has been here all along in our faith journey. And thank goodness Jesus actually chose this particular passage and not one that is about 10 scripture verses later that says you shall not tattoo any marks upon your body. Because I think we'd have fewer people in the pews if Jesus had said that was the greatest commandment. It is true that Leviticus is filled with all sorts of laws that seem crazy by our standards today. You were forbidden to eat bugs, for example, but insects that have hinged legs were fine. So grasshoppers, crickets, those of you who are hippies and eating the uh, newfangled idea of cricket flour, as my daughter has been doing, you'd be good to go with cricket flour. Leviticus also forbade Jews from drinking the blood of animals which I'm good with, uh, but it also forbade them to eat shrimp and pork, which is a little more challenging for those of us who like a little bacon-wrapped shrimp, for example. From Leviticus, we learn the many, many, many women you should not sleep with because you are related. These are excellent reminders for us. And we also learn that Jews were forbidden to cut their hair on the sides to trim their beards, or fail to include salt offerings to God. Now we could go into every one of these laws and more of them, justifying and explaining them in their social, cultural, religious context of the day. 
But what's more important for us today in Leviticus, including the scripture that Jesus quoted, is that right here in this ancient book of laws is where we begin to see people being called upon to distinguish the holy from everything else. Yes, God is in everything, in the everyday ordinary, but here we're being called to distinguish the holy from the unholy, the sacred from the secular. Leviticus was concerned with what it meant to enter into the presence of the divine and how people needed to behave in order to prepare themselves to be in God's presence what they needed to offer, what they needed to sacrifice, how they needed to prepare their bodies, their minds, and their hearts. People had never been invited into the presence of their gods before. This was something entirely different. In this book of laws, Jesus is, in short, commanding us to be the better person. Leviticus is demanding us to be the better person. Maybe somebody at CDOT's been reading Leviticus as they make their road signs for us. The constant theme here in Leviticus is holiness because for the first time in the history of mankind, God was inviting people into his presence. And that was something not to be taken lightly. We were to be prepared. So in chapter 19, God tells the people exactly what that holiness will look like. He says, this is what it will sound like. This is what it will feel like. And it will be, are you ready for this? It will be like God. Over and over again in Leviticus 19, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's how he starts this and he goes on to tell the people over and over again, these are, the, these are my ways, make them your ways. He says, revere your mother and father. Keep my Sabbath. Don't turn to idols. Offer sacrifices that are acceptable on your behalf. Don't offer God leftovers. Offer God your best self. Leave some food for the poor and welcome the foreigners. Don't steal. Don't deal falsely with people. Don't cheat your neighbor. Pay your laborers what they are due. Don't make life harder for those who are already hurting. Don't be partial to the poor just because they're poor, nor should you defend the great. Don't slander your own people. Don't hate your own relatives. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to be holy. This is what it means to enter into a relationship with the divine, to prepare ourselves to enter into that relationship. Now, if that list sounds familiar, and I hope it does, it's a reinforcement of the Ten Commandments, but with some practical application. After almost every one of these prescriptions, God says, I am the Lord your God. He says it eight times in this passage alone. Why? Because God is not only telling us how to behave, but he says, watch me do it. He says, do this because it's what I do. Do this because it's what I do. Do this because it's what I do. 
In other words, if you're about to do something that might offend God or your neighbor, don't do it. If your actions might not honor God or honor others or honor yourself, don't do it. And, and we could put this into today's vernacular. If you're about to post something on Facebook that's mean-spirited or derogatory or fake news, just don't. If you're tempted to tweet comments that are intentionally meant to be rude or offensive to others, don't. If you are constantly placing a higher priority on things rather than on God or your family, don't do that. When you know that you have enough food, money, and shelter to go around, help those who don't. And one of the most surprising, I think, from Leviticus, the rights of the poor are important, but so are the rights of the wealthy. Don't insult either. You see, we are children of God, and we should behave as such. God instructs and God models holiness and love. And the entire passage here in Leviticus 19 expresses love as neighborliness. When we act in these ways, we affect the good of our entire community. What we do matters. It matters to us individually. It matters to our community, to our families, to the world. It mattered to the Israelites then, and it still matters to us today. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is radical. 3,000 years ago, other ancient religions didn't look to their deities as role models of ethical behavior. But right here in this hard-to-read book, harder-to-understand sometimes, book of Leviticus, God gives the people a moral compass. God is holiness itself. And God commands us to be likewise. How? By loving others. Holiness is expressed in loving others. This is something totally different than the world had ever seen. So when a man standing in a crowd of people 500 years later leans in and in a condescending and accusing voice says, Teacher, tell us. Which law in the commandments is the greatest? The answer came easily. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all the laws hang on this. In other words, every one of the 613 laws in the Old Testament could be interpreted through the lens of love God, love others. It is striking that the legal expert in the crowd that day asked a singular question, which command is the greatest? And Jesus answered with two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and the second is like it. Now, the Greek word used here for like is homoios. It is from the same root word that's used to describe Jesus as consubstantial or being of the same substance as God or some of you who might remember from our creed, one in being with the Father. The same word was used there 
that is used to describe the second command as being like it. Homoios means that it is something is interconnected, inseparable, of equal importance. The command to love God is inseparable from the command to love neighbor. We cannot first love God and then as a separate chore go and love our neighbor. To love God is to love our neighbor and vice versa. To love our neighbor is to love God. Our rituals of attending worship, reading the Bible, studying scripture, all of this reaches out into our daily lives in profound ways. The way that we treat the people we come in contact with is the same way that we treat God. And as Christians, we are commanded to love them both. Inseparably, equally, the same. That's not easy to grasp. Jesus reached back into the holiest of books of the Jewish people to answer the question that was posed to him to that, that day. And we can reach back in time to hear his answer resonate with us still today. In fact, I think we would be hard-pressed to find any situation in which loving our neighbor is not the answer. Yes, we can definitely acknowledge the complexities of the world we live in, and it seems like a simplified answer, but you and I both know it, loving our neighbor is anything but simple, anything but easy. Not one of us would argue, however, that if we did live in this way, we truly honored this, the greatest commandment, the world would be a very different place. If only we could actually do it. God was doing something radically different with that list of Old Testament commands. Until then, love had never been associated with religion. Sometimes it's hard to believe that it still is today. Sadly, it's not always a given. Yet God commanded that this was to be the very foundation of our lives. This was what was to set us apart. The command to love is not new. It has been here all along. And one day, one day, we will manage to do it. Amen.